Good morning, and it's great to uh, be here today. I hope you're as thankful for the rain as I am that is falling. It reminds me of just the rain of God's love and His compassion for us and His mercies that are new every morning. And so, may you experience His love just like the earth is experiencing this rain right now. So last week, I wanted to bring to you, because I feel it's a very relevant message for Easter, but also a relevant message for any time. It's entitled The Beautiful Gospel. This was developed by a man by the name of, a pastor by the name of Brian Zahn. He's from the U.S., and uh, he's done such a stellar job in developing this that you can't really make an improvement on it. So... Uh, I want to give him credit to this. Uh, It's basically a presentation of two versions, or what I would say is two approaches to the gospel message. And so you're going to hear two different these two different approaches. The first approach was developed back in the 16th century, one that we are very familiar with. The other approach is more ancient. It it comes from the early church, the uh, apostolic fathers. And this is how they understood or how they approached the message, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so that's what you're going to see. So the other thing, too, you see two chairs here. The chairs simply represent one, this will say this one represents God, and this one represents humanity. Uh, the colors mean nothing. It's just so that you can understand just the movement of the chairs. And that's what's key is the movement. So either if a chair is, if one's turning away from or turning towards to, just so you understand that. So the beautiful gospel, where do we begin here? Well, a good place to begin is the gospel of John. And John was a very close, intimate friend of Jesus, one of the 12 disciples. And John wrote this gospel later in his life. And what's interesting with his gospel is where he starts. And John sort of like lays the foundation, wants you to know right out front uh, who this Jesus is and who he is speaking of. And so John says in his gospel, he starts off in verse 1, chapter 1, in the beginning, the word already existed. And he says, the word was with God and the word was God. And he goes on to say that he existed in the beginning with God And God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. So quite profound in that sense. And then he goes on down to verse 14. Trickle on down there. And John makes these words which are pivotal. So the word became human and made his home among us. That whole thing of, of Jesus becoming, living, moving in with us, which speaks of his name from Isaiah of Emmanuel, God with us. John goes on, he was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. And then down in verse 16, John writes, from his abundance, we have all received one blessing after another. It's the extravagance of God, right? And he said, for, his, for the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. And John writes, no one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. 
So those, that's, that creates sort of our foundation from which to continue with. The church, universally, globally, regardless of the streams, hold, there's two tenets that we hold firmly to. The first one is that God is immutable. What does immutable mean? Uh, it means God doesn't change. In other words, if you grew up or if you had this thought that in the Old Testament God is grumpy and angry and violent and stuff, and then come to the New Testament, you know, God's a happier God, that's a mutating God. That's a God that changes and it makes God hard to follow because you don't know, is God going to change? The scripture is very clear that God doesn't change. God is the same, it says, same yesterday, today, and forever. The other tenet that the church holds to is that God has fully revealed himself through and in Jesus Christ. In other words, uh, when you read in the Gospels of Jesus' teachings or his parables, those are God's teachings, those are God's parables. When you see the posture of Jesus towards people or the actions of Jesus towards people, that's God's posture and actions. So as you see Jesus, so is God the same. And Paul said that in his letter to the Colossians. Paul says that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. So those are two tenets that are held very strongly by the church of all streams throughout the globe. So I'm going to preach two little mini-sermons today, uh, one being the first approach to the gospel, or the one approach to the gospel, the other being the, the, other, the second one, the more ancient one. So let's start with the first one. And before we get into this, the first one, what I want you to think of, the word that uh, sort of would describe the first one would be retributive, meaning think re- retribution. Um, if you want a picture of something, picture a courtroom with, uh, you know, you have a judge, that's God, and uh, the language that gets used is more legal-type language. So that's, that's the essence of it. And this is how it goes. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then it goes on down that, then God, from the earth, God created humanity in God's image. And humanity was given authority to care for the earth. Uh, It says in some versions, dominion over the earth, but to care and to be God's representative. The serpent came along and deceived humanity, and humanity, which was Adam and Eve, they sinned against God, and as a result, they turned from God. And because sin entered into humanity... And God is pure and holy and cannot look on sin and cannot be in the presence of sin. God turned away from humanity and there was this separation. There was this like breach in the relationship between God and humanity. And what you see through the Old Testament is humanity's attempt to try and, and to, whether you call it appease or try to do everything that's right to please God, but to no avail. But because God loves the world, God sent his son Jesus into the world, who was the Messiah, and Jesus was, went about preaching the, the gospel. And the interesting thing about Jesus and God is that they had this oneness in relationship. Jesus says, I only do 
the things that I see the Father doing, I only say what I, what I hear the Father saying. And so they had this oneness in relationship, and Jesus went about doing the works. Then what eventually happens is that Jesus is arrested by the religious leaders of the day, and he is tried, condemned, and of course we know what last weekend was, what we remembered was Jesus was uh, crucified on the cross. And while he was on the cross, the scripture says that the sin of humanity was placed on Jesus. He bore all our sins is what it says. And because God is pure and holy and cannot look on sin, cannot be in the presence of sin, God then must have turned his back on his son because we hear Jesus from the cross calling out, uh, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And then Jesus breathes his last, and Jesus goes to the tomb, is buried. But because Jesus was born without sin, because he never sinned during his life, and in fact never sinned in his death, God raises Jesus back up to new life. And there is again this, this oneness that Jesus and God have, and and Jesus now becomes our suffering, that if we'll put our faith in Jesus, that he becomes our covering. Martin Luther described it as, we become like snow-covered dung. Interesting image. <laughs> Other preachers have said that what Jesus becomes for us is a covering like an asbestos suit that protects us from the white, hot, fiery wrath of God. And if you reject this and turn from God, then naturally God turns from us. And humanity is doomed. That's version one. Uh, that's, that was retributive. That's common for the last four or five hundred years. It's what many people have grown up with. However, the ancient church, meaning the early church, the church fathers, they saw things a little differently. And so I want to share with you now version number two. Version two, I want you to think of the word restorative. And restorative is that whole thing of just restoration, bringing wholeness back to something. And if you're going to think of a scene, think of a hospital. Uh, because the understanding was that sin entered into creation, all of creation, and into humanity. And we're like, you could think of it as we're infected by sin. That regardless of what we do, we can't, we can't on our own make ourselves pleasing before God. We don't walk naturally in that way, in the way God has, desires us to. So think restorative in this. So let's begin. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then God, from the earth, created humanity in God's image. And humanity was given authority over creation to care for it and to be God's representatives in the world. And then the serpent came and deceived humanity, and humanity disobeyed God, what God had asked, and humanity turns from God. And as a result of sin coming in, sin brought futility and brought death. And in fact, the Gospels, they actually address that God's coming to save us from this death and save us also from the fear of death. 
That's what the Gospels, that's the basic message of the, of the Gospels here. But then you got to ask the question, when man turned, what actually did God do? And when you read the account of Genesis, what you read is that God came looking for Adam and Eve, wanting to know, hey, where are you guys? Where have you gone? What are you hiding for? And Adam and Eve had hid themselves because with death and with futility comes shame as well. And what you see God do here is you see God covers them. He covers them. And you see this thing throughout all the Old Testament where people turn away from God. And you can look at Abraham, Moses, David. Down through the line, people turn away and God pursues that. God's always in pursuit of people. And then the the, the best picture of God's pursuit of people is, of course, that at the right time, God sends his son into the world. John writes in his gospel in the third chapter, that this is what he says, this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son. And so the father sent Jesus into the world to be God in the flesh, God in the flesh. And Jesus went about doing good. And, the, and preaching the good news and preaching the gospel and letting it get out there. Here's a woman. That's strike one. She's a Samaritan, strike two. And in Jesus' times, those were two strikes against her. And why a Samaritan was, it was a strike against her is because the Jews despised the Samaritans. And this, mind you, the Samaritans didn't think high, very highly of the Jews either. And both were in pursuit of God, and, uh, but here was this woman, and she went to a well to get some water for herself, because it was close to her village where she lived. Broken life. Couldn't keep marriages together. From that, you can just imagine just the type of life she, she lived. What does God do? Well, here comes Jesus, <laughs> right? Thirsty, hot, tired. Comes to this well because apparently Jesus doesn't have a problem going into Samaria. And he comes before the woman and he says, Hey, can you give me something to drink? And she goes, Hey, you don't have anything from which I can draw water out. And then Jesus says, <clears throat> has this funny, excuse me, has this funny comment he makes. If you ask me for water, I could give you living water and you would never be thirsty again. And, you know, of course, the conversation goes on. And on. She wants to know, like, who is he? Like, what, like, and then he tells her about her, what well, we call it, he read her mail. He told her, I know all about you. I know that you've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now isn't even your husband. And you can almost sense Jesus knows the brokenness she, that she carries around with her. And, and she goes, what are you, a prophet or something? And the conversation continues, and they end up get coming down to that. They're both waiting for the Messiah to come because the Messiah will reveal the truth. And Jesus goes, uh, by the way, <laughs> I am the Messiah. And she's, whoa. She says, and you, can you come back to my village? Because I'd love to introduce you to my neighbors and my friends and have them see you. And what, is God, what does God do? Sure, let's go. <laughs> so away, Jesus and the Samaritan woman go to her village, 
And you would think Jesus would, you know, do a one-hour preach on the street corner. Nope. <laughs> Jesus stays there for like two, three days and hangs out with them. And people become his followers. Here's a Jewish man named Zacchaeus. And he has done spectacularly well financially in his life. And in his, in his vocation, he has like been promoted, been promoted, been promoted. He knows success. He knows wealth. And Zacchaeus, while he has all of this, there's this emptiness in him. And, and he's heard of this man, Jesus, who claims to be the Messiah. He hears all the stories, what he's doing. And there's something that, is, that, that his heart is drawn to. And then he hears this, that Jesus might be coming to, Jesus coming to the town. And he wants to get a glimpse of the, who this man is. But the only problem that Zacchaeus has is Zacchaeus is about this high. <laughs> he's short. And not his fault. He just is. And Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus, but he knows with all the crowds wanting to see him as well, how's he ever going to see him? And plus, Zacchaeus, it's, it's a lonely life for him. And here's why. His job was a tax collector. In fact, he was so good at it, he, he became a chief tax collector. Problem is, he's working for the Roman government. And who is he taxing? The Jewish people right? And uh, so he's not, he's not a favorite of theirs as well. He can never, Zacchaeus could never worship in the temple on Sabbath because he'd been hanging out with Gentiles all during the week. He was unclean. He couldn't. And there was just this hunger in his heart, this, this, like this hole in his heart that he wanted filled. And he wanted to, and he just wanted to see this man, Jesus, is it really true what people are saying about him? So Zacchaeus has this idea. I'll climb a tree. <laughs> I'll get above the people, above their heads, and I will uh, I'll be able to see him then. So then we have to ask the question, what does Jesus do? <laughs> ah, Jesus comes by, and of course all the crowds are, are seeing him, and Jesus stops right where Zacchaeus is and looks up and goes, Zacchaeus, what are you doing up in a tree? You and I have an appointment tonight. I'm coming... Yeah, I'm coming to your house for dinner tonight. I'm going to eat at your place. Now, you've got to understand something. In the, in the Middle Eastern culture, that's huge. Because it, to, to come into a person's home and to sit at their table, eat their food, you were bestowing huge honor towards that person. Nobody had ever done that for Zacchaeus. Nobody. And Zacchaeus was overwhelmed by this love that Jesus would, first of all, notice him but was willing to come and sit at Zacchaeus' house and eat his food. And Zacchaeus said, Jesus, you got to know, I'm going to pay back everybody I've ripped off. And, and he said, I'm going to give half my wealth to the poor. And Jesus says this, Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. Here's a woman, Jewish woman, caught by the religious leaders in the act of adultery. And they bring her into the temple area. And Jesus just happens to be there. And they go, hey, Jesus, come over here. The law of Moses says, anyone caught in the act of adultery should be stoned. What do you say? And Jesus being Jesus doesn't react quickly. <laughs> he just kneels down on, uh, on the ground there. And he starts to just write in the dirt. <laughs> He's just writing. And then he, he looks up and he goes, he goes, tell you what, you who are without, the, without any sin, you can throw the first stone. 
And at that point, one by one, they back away and slowly they dissipate to the point where none of the accusers are there. So what does Jesus do? Jesus turns to this woman and he says, hey, where are those who condemn you? She says, they're not here. And he says, neither do I. He says, you go, you live your life. He says, I free you from your addictions. I free you from your brokenness. Just don't sin anymore, don't, because that's not the way you've been designed. That's not what for. You are whole now. Go and live your life. I think you're getting the picture, right? Here's a Gentile man living in Gentile territory. Feared by everybody. Feared because he's demon-possessed. He lives off on the outskirts, of, on the edge of town. He howls. He screams. People are afraid of him. He is, he is filthy, dirty. He, he sometimes will rip his clothes off. He takes jagged rocks and cuts his body all up. And nobody wants anything to do with him. They don't know what to do with him. What does Jesus do? <laughs> Jesus gets a boat. Now, whether it's his boat or somebody else's boat, he hops in a boat, crosses the sea over to where this man is into Gentile territory and comes to the man and kicks that demon out of him and frees him and restores him back to wholeness. And the man is so overwhelmed, yes, that he's now in his right mind, but more than that, for the first time in a long time, somebody noticed him and somebody cared. And here was this Jesus that came and freed him. And the Gentile was so over, overwhelmed and overjoyed. The gent, that Gentile man goes, I'm going to go wherever you go. I'm going to follow you. I'm coming with you. And Jesus goes, no, 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 don't do that. I want you to go throughout your town and I want you to go tell everybody about this beautiful gospel. Just tell them. Here's an 18-year-old guy. Grew up in the church. 12 years old, he accepted Jesus. 16, got baptized because his girlfriend did. And 17, he finally came to the decision that this Christianity was bunk. And he even said so much to God, like, you know what? I don't care if there's heaven or hell because either if... Either or, you're alive in either place, so who cares? I don't believe it. Never touched him. It never changed him, never had any impact on him. Age eight, by the time he turned age 18, he had graduated high school, started his new career. And on December the 23rd, 1977, this young man was going home for the holidays. And he was on the Queen Elizabeth Way in Toronto. And the car was breaking down, literally breaking down. And he limped it off down the Browns line to a garage and went in. The mechanic, the guy who owned the garage, came out, looked at the car, crawled underneath, stood back up, said, your car is trash. It's no good, not, can't be repaired. And the young man said, so what do I do? And the guy said, well, you can leave your car here for a couple of days, but then I want it off. I want it off the lot. And the mechanic walked away. And the young man was left standing there, and he saw a phone booth over by the corner. He walked over to the phone booth, and he thought, I'll call my brother. He called, no answer. I'll call my sister, no answer. 
Other sister, no answer. Girlfriend, no answer. Parents, no answer. And he stood there in this phone booth. And there was this cloud of, it felt like loneliness to him. What does God do? Well, God (laughs) squeezed his way into the phone booth. And the young man heard these words, sort of like this. Well, for someone who thought hell was a walk in the park, you're sure having a hard time with Toronto. And all the young man could say, can you help me? It was me. And there was just this inkling in his head, call that one sister again. And I was like, called the sister? Lo and behold, she answered. <laughs> she came, picked me up, brought me home. The next day, Christmas Eve, we went to church, Christmas Eve service, pastor preached a typical Christmas message, and then stopped and said, this is the wonderful, best time of the year, right? We've got family, friends, gifts, food, fun, everything. But some of you are really lonely. And the pastor said, you need to know Jesus loves you. And that did it for Scott. Here's humanity created in God's image, but as a result of turning away from God, sin entered in, and as a result, subject to fertility and death, and humanity dies and goes to the grave. Well, you have to ask the question, what does God do? Remember God's name, Emmanuel. God with us. What we call Easter, God goes to the grave with humanity. It says in Psalm, in the Psalms, that though you make your bed in Sheol or Hades, the grave is what it means. Though you make your bed there, I will be there. Why? Because God is everywhere. God is absolutely everywhere. That's why David in Psalm 139 says, if I go to the highest mountains, you are there. If I go to the, the depths of the deepest part of the ocean, you are there. Everywhere I go, you're there, God. God is everywhere. But that's not all that God has to say because remember what Jesus is. Jesus is the word and Jesus has the last say. And Jesus said in John's gospel, I am the resurrection and the life. Everyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me will never ever die. And that's not all that he has to say. There is also, Scripture says that I will call out those who are in the graves to come out and they will be resurrected back to life, to face life and to face judgment as well. And what happens, what you see here, is that what flows from God is this river of fire of God's love for humanity. And you see, because here's the thing, God's only disposition towards sinners, towards us, is unconditional love. That's what flows from God. And for those who turn towards God, it's experienced as warmth and light. 
But for those who reject God's love and turn away, it's experienced as wrath and judgment. How so? Paul, when he wrote his letter to the Romans, quotes from Proverbs and says, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame upon their heads. You see, Jesus calls us to love our enemies. Why? Because God loves his enemies. And you saw that when Jesus was on the cross. He loved his enemies. And as we freely love our enemies, if they refuse that love... The scripture says it'll be received as like burning coals heaped on their heads, right? That's how it's experienced. All we have to do is turn towards God. Because what flows from God, remember God doesn't change, he's immutable, is love. God's love for us. And if we'll turn like Zacchaeus did, we too will share a meal with Father God. That's the beautiful gospel. So here's a recap of version one. Let's go back just real quick. What happened? What happens here? Version one, God creates the heavens and the earth, and then God creates humanity in God's image. And humanity is, has authority over all of creation to care for it and to, and to have a relationship with God and to uh, be God's representative in the world. But sin comes into the world and humanity turns from God. And this is where things go a little bit wrong because what is said in version one is that God then turns from us because God can't be in the presence of sin or look upon sin. Because you have to ask the question, where does that come from? And it comes from one verse in Habakkuk, which is just a little uh, prophet in the Old Testament there. And it's in the first chapter, verse 13, where it says, But you are pure and cannot stand the sight of evil. So you take that out of Habakkuk, then this sounds right. However, when you read all of Habakkuk in, that, in the context of that prophetic word from that prophet, and when you look at overall the overarching story of the Old Testament and the New Testament, the gospel, what God is saying through Habakkuk is, no, God is too holy to look on evil and, and do nothing about it. That because God is a God of love, God has to do something about it. We also take this from as well on the cross. Remember on the cross, because when the sin was placed on Jesus, and uh, as a result, God turned away from Jesus because God can't look at sin. And Jesus calls out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And obviously God turns away. Or does he? Jesus is quoting from Psalm 22. That's what Jesus is quoting from. And that's actually the first line of Psalm 22, first one. But what you have to understand is that whenever a psalm is quoted, you take a psalm, whenever you read that first line, you are talking about the entire psalm. You can't just take something out and separate it from the rest of what's there. You have to look at the whole thing, which is also true for Scripture. You just can't take something out and say, therefore, 
And when Jesus was saying, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Jesus was encompassing that entire psalm. And when you read the entire psalm, you come to verse 24, which says these words, for he has not ignored or belittled the suffering of the needy. He has not turned his back on him, but has listened to their cries for help. That's what you read in Psalm 22. And we remember, God is like Jesus. Jesus fully reveals who God is like. Jesus never turned away from sin. Never turned away from sinners. Never. Never turned from them. You won't find one. one. Check out Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Check it all out. You'll never see that. The only ones who turned from sinners were the Pharisees. They're the only ones. And God is not a Pharisee. He is not. God never gives up on us. God is always in pursuit of us. That's what the scriptures always proclaim. If you reject God's love, God only has one disposition. And that disposition is always the same and it never changes. And it is that ceaseless, endless, unconditional love for you and me and all people. Last Sunday, we celebrated the resurrection of Christ. And it was, uh, and that is a cataclysmic event that took place in the universe that changed literally everything. And while the resurrection is a promise for the future, it is also impacts the message of the kingdom that the message of the kingdom is for today, is for right now. And it has one message and one message only, and that is that the gospel, the good news, is for everybody, for all time. The message is good, and it's absolutely beautiful. And all we need to do is just turn towards God. God is always in pursuit of us, always longing to bring us home. And for you, I want to say to, to you today, look, God's pursuing you. Absolutely, God is. And all that is required is that you turn to God and that you receive that love and you'll experience it as warmth and light. God is for you. And when you have God, you have everything. And so that's my prayer today, that you would just, if you're this right now, like I was, that you'll just do this. That's all you have to do to know that God is already turned towards you. So Father, I just pray right now that for those who are listening, for those who may be following you, that Lord, this would be a reminder of the fantastic news that a Messiah has come. And I just pray, Father, that for every person who may right now have walked away and have said, I'm done, done with anything, 
that, Lord, that they will know that you are the God who has turned towards them, that you long for them to turn to you. And I pray, Father, they would just make that turn. Holy Spirit, I just ask you to move upon hearts. I pray your kingdom come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.